I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember grabbing like a, I don't know if it was a magazine or something to lay on top of it when it was laying on the thing as it goes through. And the lady for sure just like grabs a thing. and I'm just going, oh, no, no not L. Like there's going to be someone's going to be walking right in. I couldn't even believe it. It was the craziest thing I ever had dealt with. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip hop moguls, world class athletes and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. In an era defined by short attention spans and instant gratification, it's easy to lose perspective on the unwavering determination and resolve required to attain true greatness at something. Our guest today is a four-time consecutive world champion surfer. It's a journey marked with personal hardships, sacrifices, and steadfast perseverance. As a teenager, she left behind a troubled home life in Florida and ran away to California to pursue her dream of becoming a professional surfer. By 21, she had won her first Pro Tour event, and by 25, she was ranked the best female surfer on the planet. She also played a role in developing the first ever board shorts designed specifically for women. In collaboration with her sponsor, Roxy, she helped lay the foundation for an entire apparel sector geared towards female surfers. 
So how do you come to terms with being a groundbreaking athlete who played a vital role in opening doors for an entire generation of female surfers, but never fully reaped the financial rewards of the surf apparel category and the women's pro tour that they were instrumental in popularizing? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this Surfing Hall of Fame inductee and inspirational athlete that was named one of Sports Illustrated's 100 Greatest Sportswomen of the Century. Today, surfer, mother, mentor, and brand ambassador, Lisa Anderson. Lisa Anderson, thank you so much for sitting down. How have you been? I've been great. I've been good. I know you were out in Montauk recently, and unfortunately, we didn't uh, get a chance to have our paths crossed. Did you enjoy yourself out there? Have you spent a lot of time out there? I enjoyed myself a lot. I had so much fun. Um, it had been several years since I'd been out there. Um, I don't even know how long, maybe 10 years or something like that. We used to do a lot of tours there when we were uh, visiting stores and things like that for Quicksilver and Roxy. And it's been a while, but it was so much fun. I can't wait to do it again, actually. Like everywhere else, whether it's the North Shore or Southern California or Montauk, did you notice a big difference in the amount of people and the growth of surf culture since you've been out there? I did notice a lot of growth. Even in the town of Montauk, there was just... uh, it just seemed like there was a lot more hustle bustle, yeah. a lot more stores and, um, you know, such great places to eat, things like that. Like we had small opportunity to walk around town and kind of check things out. So, yeah, I did notice quite a bit of change. Yeah, I mean, Montauk was ultimately a sleepy little fishing town until 10, 15 years ago. And now it's, you know, kind of become Hamptons 2.0, but it's still a beautiful place. No, it's so beautiful. It's one of my favorite places. I was even thinking gosh, could I actually live here in the summer and then leave in the winter? Like it's one of those places where you, you kind of like start, the wheels start spinning and you're like, oh no, I don't, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fall is really the secret spot to be honest, because there's, there's, there's actually waves and the people go home and you know, it's, it's, it's really charming out there. Well, fall is the best time of year. I mean, you get yeah. all the good surf, the swells from the hurricanes like linger around and <clears throat> you get lots of, uh, that's just my favorite time of year anyway, no matter where I'm at. Yeah, same in Rockaway, actually. I mean, fall's, fall's gorgeous. So you got a lot going on. You have a big drop coming out with Caddis. What's that all about? How long have you been working with them? Um, yeah, with Caddis, I, I, I started working when they started, um, and I'm probably not correct on the time, but I feel like it's been over around 10 years. So not over, but maybe 8 to 10 years it's been, maybe longer. I, I can't even remember, but uh, I was approached. I was living in California at the time, and, and Enoch Harris approached me and he's like, Hey, you know, we have this idea <laughs> to, um, you know, do something with, uh, with surfers that are basically like, you know, when you hit your, you're too old to be marketed sort of thing, um, which is highly not true, obviously, but like, you know, you kind of feel like, well, well, you're, you know, you're not really the demographic anymore in certain aspects of surfing as far as in marketing with like certain products. So, you know, Enoch comes over and he's like, yeah, we have this suite. We're doing readers. Do you use them? I'm like, um, yeah. I mean, I didn't <laughs> yeah. want to admit it because, you know, you're staring at screens and phones all day. And basically, yeah, I was struggling. I was buying them from the drugstores and stuff, like trying these glasses. And the concept of wearing them was just, you know, was something you really did not want to accept, right? So, yeah, he just proposed that idea to me, like, we're going to use surfers that, um, you know, hey, this is like, you know, you're you're aging and you might as well do it gracefully and wear something cool. And if you like it, let's do it. And I was like, yeah, this totally makes sense. I'm down. <laughs> and do you have a new model dropping or what's what's coming up in the near future? Yeah. So one of my favorite um, models is the 
the very first one is called the Miklos and it was their very first frame them. And that's basically all I really wear. They make so many different things, but uh, different styles and, and all kinds of stuff. And um, it's really diverse, but like this frame in, in particular that I'm wearing is the Miklos frame. But what makes it mine is the actual, with the frame, the color of the frame, the whole concept behind it was, you know, I'm into the ocean and I love the ocean. I love everything ocean. So I wanted the frame to be that kind of color. It's like a translucent, turquoisey color, but it's hard to tell when you're looking at it like right on screen. Like you'd have to hold the frame up to the sunlight and this like pop of like turquoise pops out. Oh, that's exciting. That for me is like cool. Like, and then just it's not too bright where you can't wear it around and feel like you stick out a little bit because I'm, I don't like to be <laughs> kind of out, if you know what I mean. I'm just like, yeah, I don't want to stand out too much, but it's just perfect frame for me. It fits good. I wear them all the time. Yeah, it's just been it's been really fun to work with those guys. Yeah, they're they're a great company. I actually did a collab with those guys um, when my Hawaii book came out. They had activation at the Whalebone Space in the West Village, and we did a little photo installation. So when when's that dropping? Just so people can know and to look out for them. Um, I want to roughly say that, this summer. Uh, yeah, this summer, July, end of July. So um, just keep an eye out for that on their website, and I'll probably be posting a bunch of stuff as soon as I find out when and where. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, there's a partnership with Surfrider Foundation. So for every pair that you buy, you get a, a membership with Surfrider. And, um, you know, along with that, like I'm doing a surf camp next week here at hometown in Florida here. And um, we're doing like a big beach cleanup with my surf camps. Like all the kids that come down, I'm going to put them to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of year where summer hits here. where we get, The beaches are packed. There's You can drive on the beach. So there's a lot of people just kind of leave their stuff. And it's hard to see when you come down there to go surfing every day. And so we're going to try to clean it up when we're there. I'm curious about what your relationship with surfing is now compared to the days when you were surfing competitively. I mean, does does the pursuit of being elite at something, by definition, dilute the enjoyment of just doing it purely for pleasure? I mean, in other words, you you had to overcome some significant odds and challenges in order to win your world titles. Was there ever a point when it became more about the goal as opposed to love of the activity? Like, does there, did you lose your love of surfing at any point or was it always there? This is such a good question because I just have been going through such a transition with just that. I think that, you know, to start, yeah, I absolutely hated surfing for quite a while. Um, and this was just recently before COVID. I was living in California and I had like back surgery. I couldn't do rehab because... When COVID hit, everything shut down. I couldn't surf, or when I tried to, it was cold. The water's too cold for me. The crowds, because everyone congregated to the ocean or started surfing, and it just felt overwhelming. Even with my my equipment, I was not connecting with that. I wasn't happy with it. Like this, it just fell apart. It was like it was like a like a a relationship with someone that you were deeply in love with, and that just completely fell apart. And uh, I just was like, wow, you know, like, I guess I just can't do this anymore. It was just hard because I think that mainly because every time I went out and I figured this out later on was that every time I went out, I had so much pressure on myself to perform at a certain level. Whereas when you're done competing at a certain level and you step back and you try to reinvent yourself or try to find the next thing, um, how you detox yourself from that kind of surfing, that mindset of like you have to do a certain level every time you surf. And if you don't, then people are going to think you're washed up or you're no good or, you know, that whole mentality. So that was really hard for me to like get my head around because obviously the ego was in the way, but also the fact that that's what I, I, I 
you know, I, I didn't want to accept the fact that I had to like not surf that way. It was just something that was just driven in me for so long. It was hard to put that to sleep. And it was hard to kind of figure out like, okay, well, there was just a lot going on in my life at that time anyway. So I was struggling with that too. And having surfing not there for me was a disappointment because that was like my escapism. Um, and not being able to get out in the ocean to balance everything out, escape and detach and, you know, just release stuff. That was hard. So it just stayed inside. My head was about to blow. And what changed? I moved to Florida. I mean, something was like, okay, I need to go to Florida. And it was 2020. I bought a ticket. There was, the plane was empty. I was like two people on a flight to Atlanta. And then I connected to Daytona. I got back here to Florida, paddled out in the surf one day. And I was like, I mean, the water was crystal clear, blue, 80 degrees, and five people out. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm home. I'm I'm coming back home. This is the, the light went on, you know. And I was like, okay, just called everyone back in California and said, I'm not coming back. <laughs> and so surfing became a different thing for me. It became that feeling again. And also just like equipment, like I realized, okay, I just want to have fun. And to be able to not have that approach to where you have to kick ass every time you paddle out or be at a certain level was something I had to really let go of and find the fun in surfing and find the solitude and the, the freedom in it again and appreciate it for what it was. What does that look like for you? I mean, have you embraced longer boards or more volume or what, how, how do you, how do you let go of this desire to be the Lisa Anderson from when you're 21? I mean, you know, it never really goes away. I mean, you, you know, the quiver's still in the garage, right? Like you still throw it in the back of the truck. Cause there's always that like, well, what if I decide, or what if it's always there? You, you kick yourself if you didn't throw it in the car anyway, you know? But um, yeah, I changed to like definitely more fun boards, like twin fins, quads, like a shorter, fun, more volume, just faster, floatier. Water's different here. We got a lot more salt in the ocean. I, I don't know. It's just a different sort of um, flotation here for me. And the waves are smaller, less less push, less power. And so I, everything changed, like an entire, the entire thing changed for me. And I started riding longboards, soft tops, like everything you could throw at me, I was riding because it was fun. And um, even though those short boards, those performance style boards are still in the garage staring at me, <laughs> um, it's, it's, they're there because they know they're going to be used sometime. Yeah. Like it's, it's a matter of when you go on a trip to Hawaii or you go to, on a boat trip somewhere where the waves are a bit you know, that more that level, then you know you, you're, you're ready to go. When you travel all around the world or all around the country, does it give you fresh perspective on just how much surfing has grown, particularly women surfing since the time when you first started? Yeah. I mean, when we, when I was in Montauk, I had participated in a surf, you know, like a surf camp uh, in the morning, one of the days, and we had 40 kids there, mostly girls, like probably 99% girls and 40 kids and they skip school to actually serve. <clears throat> so that was mind blowing to me. I mean, not really mind blowing because it's kind of, that's been the norm. Like there's just been this insurgence of, of girls surfing since a few, a few decades now, you know, when you when you have the likes of Chris, Chris Moore winning a, um, a gold medal and Stephanie Gilmore winning eight world titles. And there's, there's this full, um, these, these rock star girls you can look up to that, that are heroes or like, giving these girls someone to aspire to be, that helps a lot. You know, a lot of these girls are just like, you know, they, they finally have someone they can dream to be and, sur and surfing is just, it hasn't really been there for 
a long time and now it's it's there. That must be inspiring. I mean, you you know you're a part of that as well. That must feel uh, empowering. Yeah, I mean, um we're all we all get inspired by the things we we're dedicating our lives to do because there's, you know, there's obviously something there guiding you. Uh, I feel like, you know, I've had all my heroes and things like that, you know, that I looked up to, um, that I aspired to be like. And, you know, there was plenty of female surfers in, in the generations before me. And, you know, it's nice to be able to acknowledge them like Real Sun and Margo Oberg and Wendy Bolta, Frida Zamba, to name a few. So it's like these girls now, like, you know, when I was competing, were just little, little kids. And uh, now they're on tour and stuff like that. I, and I still rub shoulders with a, a bunch of them because I'm still at events watching up in the VIP area or just hanging out with them in the competitors area. And I still work with a, a few of the girls that work with Roxy. So I, I still get to be kind of front and center. It's a lot of fun. So, I mean, I was thinking, it, it seems like with every youth culture movement, whether it's skateboarding or punk rock or, or surfing, there's this group of people who were kind of mavericks and they set a template and opened up a lot of doors for the generations that come after them. And they're often celebrated from within the culture, but there seems to be this common theme that that, that group is often not rewarded financially as much as the generations that come after them. And, you know, I'm wondering, do you ever have any lingering resentments about the contributions that you made to women's surfing relative to some of the financial rewards you may not have gotten at the time? Is that an issue for you? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Um, I, and I totally get it. I have to take these off because they're fogging up. Maybe it was that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Okay. First of all, right now, like where I'm at in my life now, I mean, I'm like, I'm comfortable. I'm not like, you know, I don't really, I go day by day. Let's put it that way. Paycheck to paycheck for me right now. But I don't have any resentment. I, I know that there was a time where I did because I was younger, a bit more silly and, and didn't know, like, you know, you just learn as you go through life about how you're supposed to treat people or to behave or what energy you want to put out there. Cause you don't want to put this like, woe is me type energy, you know, like that, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a lot of uh, resentment that I, I never really carried with me. Cause I know that that's not good for you. It's not what you want to have inside of you because it just, that, that's projected onto other things. And, um, so I mean, I, I'm super, super blessed and lucky. Like I am grateful every single day, like everywhere. And I look around and just, I'm just like very, very blessed and happy. It's very calm and quiet and peaceful where I'm at. And I'm not stressing. So that's good. But like, I feel that, yeah, there was a definite time in my life where I was like, how am I? I mean, I struggled. I mean, struggled trying to figure it out. Like and contracts were coming up and they wouldn't tell me until the day before. And then that I already bounced the you know, the rent or just something like that. You know, it was just, it would always be like last second, like just stress me to the, to the core. But as time went on, I learned how to deal with it, prepare more, just kind of, you know, be a bit more responsible with life spending and, and everything that comes with it. Yeah. You've talked a lot about the fact when you first started surfing, you used to wear men's board shorts because that's basically all there was other than, you know, a string bikini. And you were there for literally the birth of Roxy and the birth of the development of this whole category of like performance apparel specifically for women surfing, but you don't have equity in that company. I mean, is there, is there a little frustration on just from that perspective? I mean, the company, I mean, there was a time where I did have stocks in Quicksilver, but I don't know if everyone knows, but like they had already, they went bankrupt years ago and they were bought and owned by banks up until recently. They were just sold. So 
you know, everyone, not just me, a lot of people lost their stocks and I didn't have a ton. I had a little bit, but it had something and um, that's all gone. Like uh, there, the company, because of the industry and, and all the hard times and stuff that happened, you know, everyone lost everything. And so that I had to say goodbye to that and not feel <laughs> you can, you can't hold on to those things because that's just not healthy. But uh, yeah, it's a bummer. Like at the end of the day, it is a bummer, but you know, and I feel like, you know, I know it sounds too optimistic, but it's like, you know, things happen for a reason and you just got to think that there's something bigger and better out there, you know, um, or, you know, it, it happened because this is going to happen, you know, kind of thing. And yeah, it, it, I know a lot of people lost a lot of money when that happened. It, it was sad, but the surf industry took a big low and a lot of people lost jobs and money and all that stuff. And, and I'm still at the brand right now after 30 years and I'm, that's unheard of and I'm very lucky. Yeah, that is, that's pretty rare. Um, so, you know, we had Mick Fanning on the podcast a while back and we talked a lot about this concept of personal sacrifice and these realizations that he came to of how so many of his relationships suffered, whether it's friends or family, because of his laser focused on being the best in the world. And on one level, it would seem like you guys have a lot in common, at least in terms of your desire to win these world titles and like a singular focus of being elite in, in the sport of surfing. But in another way, it almost seems like you have a complete opposite experience in the sense that you consciously chose to run away from home and to leave your family and your friends behind in pursuit of this dream of being a professional surfer and being the best in the world. And I'm just wondering, you know, with the, the perspective of hindsight and the perspective of being a parent, do you look back at some of those choices and wish that you had made some different choices or do those four world titles justify all of the sacrifices that you chose to make? Yeah, I really don't think I had a choice and in, in, in running away and, and pursuing that dream because when I look back, I, I mean, I'm now living in the same hometown that I left when I was that age. And there's so many times that I'm driving around and I get little memory flashbacks and sort of say to myself, gosh, you were crazy. <laughs> like, how did you even do that? What were you thinking? Like, what was actually going through your head? And how did you have the courage to do that? The, are there a lot of those flashbacks, are they are they nostalgic or are they more traumatic? Um, they're both. I mean, nostalgia is just because town is town and it hasn't really changed. So you remember spots like, oh, I used to do that there. You know, I used to ride my bike there and or this and that. And then the trauma side of it is just the family life and what I was dealing with at the time that probably was mostly what drove me away. And that stuff I don't really care with me anymore. I, I feel like that, I mean, as much as I can tell, I, I've, I've dealt with that head on. My, my relationship with my mom is, is healed um, mostly. And uh, <laughs> my dad passed a few years ago. So like, I don't have that like sort of, you know, I don't have that deep uh, traumatized vibe connection going through when I'm around home now. It's It's more like, I wish that sometimes I could tap into that kid again in some aspects of my life now, you know, like that courage to do things differently or just go for it type stuff. Like I don't even know who that person is anymore sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I watched your documentary recently and for anyone who hasn't had a chance to see it, it's called Trouble, the Lisa Anderson story. I highly recommend it. It's just a, it's a fantastic story. Um, talk to me about what it's like having a documentary made about you. I mean, on one level, I'm sure it's it's flattering on, on on a base level, but I mean, is it incredibly intimidating? I mean, because it's a very it's a very honest and candid story that details a lot of painful chapters in your life. Like what 
What inspired you to share that story with the world? Well, I mean, first of all, um, you know, I've, I've been approached several times to do motion pictures. Like I was on a contract with Warner Brothers for several years as a, you know, they were writing a life story and, you know, do a movie based on that for several years in a row. I just kept renewing it. And then I was like, you know, the scripts were so bad. And I'm like, this is just not me. I don't want to do this. I, it was awkward and difficult to read the scripts and be like, this is just not what it's like, or this is not what it was like, and this is not true to me. So um, several years later, I, uh, I've been approached by a lot of people to do documentary. And, and when I was approached by um, Charlie Smith, I was like, okay, I think I was ready. You know, it, you need a certain time in your life where you're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to talk. During that process, though, I realized <laughs> it, was, it was getting harder and harder because in, in hindsight, it was just like this, like, I guess like being in like therapy, like where you're just sort of stuff was just coming out. But, but as you're talking about certain times or timelines or when this happened, memories that were buried deep in there that you, you know, they just sort of came out and then you're like, Oh yeah. Wow. I just remembered that. That was brutal. Like, I don't even want to talk about that. You know? So there was a lot of things that I just could not go into. There was just all these things started coming back. And I think what happened was it just put me in this like straight up anxiety feeling of like, I didn't know what I was doing the right thing or not. It started to make me feel really bad. Like it was, it was bad. And I think that the, doing the film, I know that it was, you know, a big risk of just like throwing it all out there and this, it was raw and like, here I am to everybody. And I think that impacted me in a way I didn't expect, like, like during premieres and things like that, I would go to the bar and have it. I couldn't watch it, especially after seeing it. I was just like, Hey, this isn't, I felt not humiliated. I just felt really uh, um, exposed. It's revealing. Yeah. And then, so I started to like hide out and I was like, then I got anxiety. Then I had to go get on medication because that was just, I couldn't handle. And then I just realized that this was affecting me in such a negative way, but I was seeing people react in a positive way. So I was trying to balance out what, if I was helping people or if I was just not helping me, you know what I mean? Like, cause I really wanted it to inspire and help people. That was the point but I felt like it was not doing that to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I would just go sit at the bar before this because I had to do Q and A after, and I was like, okay, I I just have to have a beer. Like I have to calm down, not to like just detach real quick. And then like the Q and As were fine, but I feel like just it, the exposure that it, it the impact that that had on me was not what I was expecting it, and I felt like it did a little damage, and then took me some time to kind of recover from that. And then, but also it made a lot of things stand out that still needed to be paid attention to in my personal life or in my emotional life. You know, there's things I needed to fix for sure. Yeah. And that was like right around the time that I had the back surgery, surfing sucked. It was all, it all happened at once. We had Sam Jones on on the podcast recently and, and he was talking about his experience making his Tony Hawk documentary. And he was given a great piece of advice about documentary filmmaking. And somebody had told him that as a filmmaker, you don't want your subject to sue you, but you also don't want them to send you flowers. And the director of your movie, Chess Smith, is a friend of mine, but he's also, he's not known for pulling punches and, and mincing his words. I mean, were there any particular scenes in this movie that were really difficult for you to watch that were more revealing than you would have chosen? 
Yeah. And Charlie and I, we talked about it. I was like, I need you to pull that. I, I'm not comfortable with that. And you would be like, oh, no, this is real. This is like real stuff. Like, you know, we, people want to see that. They'll think it's funny or they'll, you know, it, it shows a part of you or this or that. Like, it, that was his argument. I get it. But for me, I was just like, no, I'm not feeling it. There was stuff I did not want in there for sure. But, you know, creatively, I wasn't in charge. So at the, at the end of the day, I felt like it, my my request didn't, didn't really matter. But it it would have been nice to not have certain things in that film. I thought that that just was kind of silly and irrelevant at times. It just made other people look bad too. And I didn't like to, to, you know, I didn't want to shed bad light on anyone. You know what I'm saying? So I was just like, that was just, it was hard for me to tolerate watching. That's all. You know, for some of the scenes that were difficult or some of the content in the movie that was difficult for you to watch, did you reconcile that by seeing the way that it affected other people? Like, did you get a sense that people had similar stories and that this movie like helped them as well, that feeling maybe they weren't alone or that it helped them maybe seek therapy or, I mean, did you get a sense that this movie helped people? I got more positive than I don't think I had a single negative thing thrown at me. I think I just expected the worst, you know? But I I got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people that did approach me in a very positive way. And that was definitely um, a really good feeling because it it definitely outweighed the things I was feeling inside. But um, I'm actually kind of blown away that maybe I didn't read one, but but I never saw anything that was kind of directed towards the parts that I didn't want in there. So that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it just must be so intimidating putting your life out there and having it in someone else's hands, ultimately. You know, I mean, that's another thing we talked about with Sam Jones is that, you know, that's kind of the death nail of any documentary is letting the subject become a producer and being involved creatively. So on one hand, I completely empathize with some of the scenes that you wouldn't want exposed to the world. This is your life. I understand that. But from a filmmaker's perspective, that's what makes a a real movie, you know? So that's an interesting conflict. And it's very brave of you to open yourself like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I totally understand it now. Like I said, I think that, you know, during that time, the time after that I decided to leave California, there was this huge growth period that I was going through. I think that there was so much stuff going on, you know, personal life and surfing and that whole professional life and all that. I think there was just this huge, like, void. And from then to now, there's been... A, you know, not like huge transformation, but like a lot of growth and uh, just understanding of stuff because like life, I mean, you just, everything you go through, you know, teaches you something. And I basically have learned a lot from that time until now. There's a common theme in this movie of you constantly moving on to the next chapter and closing doors behind you and leaving people behind and not really looking back. And at the end of the movie, there's a really beautiful line. You said that you finally learned to stop running and start living. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, well, I mean, I guess when the whole running thing, I guess, is just from trying to run from either responsibilities or situations you don't want to confront, whether it's relationships or work situations, um, family, children. I mean, I had so much stuff I was dealing with. I think mainly, I think I'm talking about relationships. Um, (laughs) And uh, there's, you know, I'm a huge empath. So like, I think that part of me is just like, you know, running from 
um, accepting people for who they are, um, running from acceptance of all kinds of things. And I, I would just like to see the good in people, you know, like be optimistic or just so, Oh, that's just whatever. And, uh, I, um, and I would run and run and run. And I, and I never really, uh, knew how to confront those things. And once I figured it out, I mean, I was just like, okay, well, once just take that one step, like of just being brave enough or to just tap into that kid that got on the plane and left, then, you know, once I started to tap into that courage um, to deal with things head on, then I stopped running and just started living more, making that big move back to Florida and letting it all go and leaving in the past behind, walking away from all the negative aspects of my life that I didn't want to deal with. Um, that's when I started living. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. 
All right, we're going to switch gears and lighten it up for a second. <laughs> there's, a, there's a hilarious scene in the movie where you suspect that you're pregnant and you go to Foodland on the North Shore to buy a pregnancy test. Anyone who's ever been to that Foodland knows that it's nearly impossible to get in and out of there without running into someone you know. You feel like you almost have made it and you're at the checkout counter and it turns into this almost like a John Hughes movie situation where the person at the checkout counter goes over the intercom. Uh, can I get a price check on a pregnancy test? Like, did that actually happen to you? I mean, that's like too classic to actually be true. I swear to God, it happened. Like, I think what you have to understand in my life, I, I almost like feel like I manifest those things in my head because I kind of feel like I'm predicting them to happen. It's like, I have this strange way of like seeing things happen before they do. And because of the circumstance, it's almost like I willed, to, willed it to happen because I was so worried about it, you know? And I remember being there and gosh, what a scary time because obviously you're like, you know, you're kicking yourself in a lot of ways, but also just terrified. And I'm, you know, I'm competing at Sunset Beach and it's probably 10, 12 feet and here I am, you know, and uh, I remember just like, just, I don't know, the whole, it's scary just to even think that you're going to buy one of those things. You're 22 years old yeah. in Hawaii. And yeah, Foodland's crazy. Like you walk in there and you're just like, hey, what's going on? I see like a million people in there. I remember grabbing like a, I don't know if it was a magazine or something to lay on top of it when it was laying on the thing as it goes through. And the lady for sure just like, grabs a thing and I'm just going, oh no, not L. Like there's going to be, someone's going to be walking right in or <laughs> just, <laughs> I couldn't even believe it. It was the craziest thing I ever had dealt with at that time. I was just like, this is not happening to me. So it turns out that you were pregnant. And the fascinating thing for me about watching that scene in the movie is that you were so much more concerned with the impact that being pregnant would have on your ability to stay on tour and your ability to perform rather than the fact that you were pregnant with the baby of the head judge while you are on <laughs> tour. And, you know, at face value, that just seems like an indisputable conflict of interest. But it didn't really seem like it was at the time. I mean, does that speak to the change in how we view privacy in an age of social media? I mean, because the internet would go berserk if that happened today. I mean, was it, was it really not an issue back then? Would I be like a lot more well off financially if that happened? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I just think that, yeah, you're right. Like, I, guess, I forget that we didn't have that kind of stuff. I mean, we were still picking up phones and dialing numbers. So, oh, geez. I mean, but it was an open secret, right? I mean, people did know within the community and within the, the athletes knew. Did they have a problem with it? Yeah. It, serving at that time was not a, obviously a huge, it was a governing body of sport, but it wasn't as big as it is now, obviously. And so Renato was the head judge um, at that time. And what, what he did was basically they hired a head judge for the girls tour or girls heats. And so whenever there was women's heats, he would just leave the contest area, like the entire, like, leave for like a couple of hours and come back. And uh, so that's how they fixed that because there was a lot of like calls where like, oh, you know, this happened and that was because he's the head judge. I mean, always, that always would happen. And, you know, it served my butt off and still there'd be controversy, but um, you know, that, that was fair. You know, I mean, what else could, I mean, would I have done the same thing maybe if it was someone else, you know, like you did, I mean, that's just what it looked like. Was there conflict with your fellow competitors and the other surfers because of that? 
Yeah, I mean, there would be calls where, you know, someone got a score and they'd be, oh, well, they would blame it on Renato, but Renato wasn't even there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like I said, he would be leaving the area. Um, and it, it was definitely an uncomfortable situation. I didn't want to be in that situation. I was in that situation. I later found out that I don't want to be in this situation. So another a couple obstacles in, in my life at that point I had to work through. But yeah, at that time it was difficult. It was scandalous. It was like crazy. And if there was social media, it would have, it would have broke the internet. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you and I, we've crossed paths briefly a few times on the North shore. Obviously we've never got a chance to really sit down and talk this much before, but um, I think I actually have a great picture of you and Mark Cunningham in my Hawaii book. Um, so I'll make sure you get the, a copy of that, but we've had a lot of people on this podcast um, like Benji Weatherly and Nathan Florence and and Mick Fanning talking about just how much the culture of the North Shore has changed over the last couple generations, specifically the hierarchy and the lineup and this kind of aggressive localism that was such a hallmark of the North Shore for so long. And I'm wondering what your perspective was as a female surfer. Did that kind of alpha male culture over there, did it make it more difficult for you to get waves and to get what was yours and be treated fairly? Or was there almost like a reverse misogyny whereby they almost looked out for you and took care of you and made sure you got waves because you were a woman? I honestly feel like there's a bit of both. I, I, there, I've had both experiences because, you know, there was this, I had this approach to surfing in the North Shore because there was always, you know, people would say, you know, or you'd hear, you know, you can't be that way. You can't act that way. This is how you act. Or this guy got his ass beat. Or did you hear about that guy? And, and you know, you just know that that's the way it goes. There's just a respect and you just need to bring your respect. That's it. That's period. And I still do. You have to. But but I just had this approach when I go surfing, it, the intimidation was out, out the window. I was just like so much going on the action of the surf together, like so many people trying to be in the spot and it was intense. And I probably didn't get a lot of ways, you know, I'd or I'd go surf really average crappy ways. I surfed actually, it's called monster mush yeah. <laughs> stone zone. I would surf there every day because it would, nobody would be out and you could ride like your seven O's and your like big guns and your small boards. And that would be the only place I'd surf because everywhere else was just too gnarly. Every now and again, I'd have to surf at Rocky Point or Rocky Rights or off the wall or something like that to get photos to supply, you know, your your sponsors or to make those guys happy to get imagery and things like that. Because that was the big deal, like getting photos. That's how you became who you were to get magazine clips and things like that. That was, that's where you, that that was the working part of the tour yeah. was Hawaii because that's where everything happened as far as photographs and things like that. So you did have to put in the hours. And I remember surfing a bunch of places. And I uh, remember one time I heard someone got slapped by a guy and it was a girl. And the way I would approach it was just to be like, sit back, never sit on, the, never sit in the peak, always sit on the shoulder. Like just make sure you're not sitting up next to somebody, like give people space. Like there was this protocol that I had that when I surfed was just to smile and stay out of everyone's way, you know, and if a wave comes, it's yours. No, no one's on it. It's yours, but like stay out of the way and smile and yeah, and everything will be cool. And that was kind of my approach yeah. to serving Hawaii when I was younger. And I mean, now it's the same, it's exactly the same. And, but now at this point, like everyone's sort of, and you know, we've grown up together, we're like family now. And so now there's that definite, 
you know, reversed where, and, and at the time too, yeah, like people want to see you go. Cause I want to see, Oh, I heard you're good. I want to see you catch a wave. So there's that like push uh, of letting you go or, you know, maybe if you show a little bit, like I want it, like they'll give it to you because you're showing a little bit of like, yeah, I want to go for it instead of being too shy. Sometimes you'd get in trouble for not going. <laughs> and so, so it was kind of confusing. You're like, okay, I didn't go. And then, then you get yelled at. You're like, okay, well, okay, no, I'm a pussy. Like I, I should have tried harder. Okay. And so the next one, like, are you going to go? Then go. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. So there was this like confusion a lot, but I think for the most part, I just tried to, to, stay in my own little bubble and stay out of the, the friction areas and time it, like go out when there was less people, the waves weren't as good. It was more dangerous and shallow, but yeah. <laughs> but at least you got waves, you know? The the notion of the crowds and paddling out and sitting and not getting away, that's a very common experience on the North Shore. What I'm getting at is did, did gender play a large role in that or was it pretty negligible? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I felt like Hawaii of all places we went to, there was a lot of girls that surfed. You know what I mean? So I, I already felt like there was also a big community of girls surfing there in, in in the first place. And a lot of the Hawaiians kind of held rank in women's surfing for a long time with Rel and what she did for women's surfing and for all the kids and the respect that she had. You know, like there was definitely a respect for, for women surfing in Hawaii. So I never felt like that wasn't present. I just felt like, if anything, that was where it flourished and that's where it kind of showed up the most. Oh, oh, that's good to hear. And had the most like respect, really. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. So we always like to end the podcast by asking the guests to plug something that they're not directly involved in that they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's a book, a movie, a surfer, a social cause, anything like that. Do you, do you want to shout something out just to kind of bring some attention to something? How much time do I have to think about that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just an opportunity to kind of, you know, like it could be it could be trivial, like a great TV show you're binging, or it could be something serious. Oh my gosh, I'm binging so many right now. You know what? I will talk about something that I just discovered. Oh. And it is based off of a podcast, and it's called Smartless. <laughs> Sam Jones just directed that, yeah. And it's basically them, they're out cruising on tour with their Smartless tour, and it's hysterical. I binged it till like three in the morning the other night. I couldn't stop. I was like falling asleep. And I'm like, no, I gotta keep going. This is too good. I can't stop. And I was trying to save it for like another day. Like, I'm, I don't like binge watching like these shows because then you're like, okay, now what? But this was incredibly funny. And I loved that it was filmed in black and white. And it also was during like the kind of the middle end of COVID too. So it was eerie and strange. So it kind of brings you back to that time of like, wow, earth was standing still. And, you know, you don't want to forget about certain things because you want to appreciate where you're at. So it was a good reminder, like that, that we were in dark times and the black and white made it feel like that. But then these guys were funny and uh, it was the perfect balance for me. I enjoyed it and I love that kind of humor. So that's just my kind of humor. Great. Well, go check that out. It's hilarious. It's called Smartless based on a podcast. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. If you hadn't had a chance, go check out Trouble, the Lisa Anderson story. Uh, what's the name of your model again, Dropping with Caddis? This is the Miklos. Okay. An electric iguana. And it says love life on the top of the frame. Amazing. Go check out a pair of those. Like I said, I, I wouldn't plug it if I didn't actually wear them. And fantastic product. Lisa, it's wonderful. Hopefully our paths will cross soon. And maybe squeezed out a baby tear in there, but it was fine. Like normally I'd be like, <laughs> no, it was good. I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much for having me. See you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. 
If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.